This is episode 27 of Untangled Faith. In this episode, I talk with Ryan Ramsey about the growing number of people who are currently not in a church home and how this pandemic season has been particularly difficult. Welcome to Untangled Faith. I've been a church person my whole life, and to feel like I don't have one right now is really, really hard. It's what we're calling deconstruction is what I observe people are just unsubscribing from a lot of the nonsense and image management and hypocrisy that they're seeing from institutions and institutional leaders. And then yeah. and then be- because they feel like they have to, to remain, to, to keep their own integrity. This is Amy Fritz, and you're listening to Untangled Faith, a podcast for anyone who has found themselves confused or disillusioned in their faith journey. If you want to hold on to your faith while untangling it from all the things that are not good and true, this is the place for you. In between the end of season three and the start of season four, I wanted to share a few episodes I have recorded and knew I wanted you to hear now. This is one of those episodes I haven't been podcasting for very long, so to bring a guest back on the show that isn't related to me or who I know in real life means that this is a voice many of you told me you love. I am honored to be able to share this conversation that I had with Ryan Ramsey. Ryan is a chaplain and an advocate for those recovering from spiritual abuse. This episode is for anyone who has lost their faith community or anyone who cares about people who have. I'm absolutely convinced both groups of listeners will find Ryan's words so valuable. Here's my conversation with Ryan Ramsey. It's good to see you. Thanks so much for reaching out again, and it's great to be with you. So I had surveyed people that listen to my podcast, and I think it was more than half of them do not currently have a church home. So I really wanted to talk to them today and create an episode for them because this is a hard, hard thing. My husband and I right now are, you know, we kind of took a little break from a church that we were going to, and we are sort of in that really unknown place. I've been a church person my whole life. And to feel like I don't have one right now is really, really hard. And so one of the things I wanted to ask you is as you have been talking to people that have experienced some really painful things, what reasons are you seeing for people who have previously been really regularly, faithfully showing up for a local church who are currently not? This won't surprise you because we interact in similar circles, but we've come in contact with and known many people, especially in recent years, who have experienced an abrupt rupture, transition in their church or faith community or faith organization for different reasons, some of them very tragic and unequivocally abusive environments that they've walked out of. There's also, you know, a lot of folks who may or may not be deconstructing, but they are feeling disillusionment and disenchantment with uh, the American church. And I think it's just, it's I, ultimately, I think it's a good, healthy process, but people are asking big questions and I think they're wanting more from institutions. They're s- sort of seeing through a lot of the problems and hypocrisy and injustice sometimes that institutions are or can be complicit with. So 
yeah, I think there's a real growing distaste and frankly, uh, intolerance for injustice and an institution's complicity in that varying expressions of what that means and what that looks like. But that's certainly a theme. You wouldn't necessarily frame deconstruction as a negative thing. No, no. It's a never ending debate right now. I think I've said something before, like a lot of times what we're calling deconstruction is what I observe. People are just unsubscribing from a lot of the nonsense and image management and hypocrisy that they're seeing from institutions and institutional leaders. And then, and then because they feel like they have to, to remain, to, to keep their own integrity, it forces you to ask big questions. Like, what do I value? What do I believe? What means the most to me as a follower of Jesus and how we engage in a community of faith? I think a lot of the quote deconstructing is just separating some of the mess from institutions to what it actually means to follow Christ and what Christianity actually was meant to look like. And then how do we reconcile those? whether or not we return to institutional investments. You're right. There's a lot of talk about the word deconstruction right now. Another question I have for you, Ryan, is can you give me permission? Maybe I don't need permission. Is it okay (laughs) to take time away from a local church? People bring up, up the Hebrews 10, 25, don't neglect meeting together. I want to follow Jesus. I want to do what he wants me to do. It says that in the Bible. Talk to me about this. It's an important question for a lot of folks right now. I think especially Christians coming out of more very conservative, if not fundamentalist, evangelical backgrounds that use very heavy-handed language about attending church. And so if you've experienced abuse or you've experienced some of this disillusionment or you're realizing you're waking up to some of the real problems in our institutions and it's forced you to sort of take a step back, take a step away, press pause as a family then you're hearing those. a lot of folks are hearing those voices. You need to be back in church. Where are you going to church? I've unfortunately heard someone say uh, something like, if you're, if you're choosing not to go to church, you're spitting in God's face. People, unfortunately, are hearing this kind of rhetoric, which I don't think sounds like the voice of Jesus at all. But to answer your question, you know, of course, there are legitimate reasons to step away for a season, at least from a local faith community. Those reasons are often very valid. It doesn't mean you're stepping away from faith in Christ. It doesn't mean you're disavowing yourself from the body of Christ permanently. I think especially for folks who are coming out of abusive environments, spiritually abusive environments, or folks who have experienced some sort of sexual abuse or impropriety from religious leaders, that's so much to unravel. And it's not dramatic to call those experiences traumatic. Yeah, Our bodies experience those events and those seasons as real trauma, and they are, and we need to treat them that way. A lot of times people will feel obligation to, if they've left a community, to jump back in, find somewhere new as fast as possible, just because they're hearing that voice that says you need to be in church. And, and they may or may not do that. They may choose to step into a new community, I would say, too fast but they're not actually dealing with the grief and the trauma. When you move too fast, you're probably not practicing discernment as to the health and integrity of this new community you're stepping into. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of implications and you can't move fast in that process. So that's a long-winded way of saying 
there are absolutely reasons to press pause as a family, as an individual to frankly honor the grief of what's happened. If you've come out of a painful thing, I think that's big for me these days is we need spaces and places and rituals and times together to honor the grief of, of what you lost and to sit with that for as long as you need to, because there's so much you lose. Yeah. And if we push forward or push along too fast and we're not doing ourselves any good and we're not doing our bodies any good, we're not doing our souls any good if we're not allowing unhurried space just to grieve uh, what we lost. And does, does meeting together with believers, I would say it doesn't have to happen on a Sunday morning in a church building. What are your thoughts on that? I think a lot of us are fond of saying you can engage and participate in the body of Christ, whether or not you are currently committed to as a member of an institution. And I do think we need to, to in helpful and healthy ways, differentiate the difference between the body of Christ and the institutions that we encounter. Of course, there's overlap there, but we can't conflate those to mean the same thing all the time, obviously. So I I encourage folks, like, you can be a full participant engaging in the body of Christ in a season where you're trying to figure out what you believe and and what to what degree you want to invest in institutions, what you believe about the role of the local church, and frankly, the standards we ought to hold our institutional leaders. That's Mm -hmm. That's such a huge part of this. I wanted to step in here and say a few words before continuing this conversation with Ryan. We're about to talk about an issue that's currently a huge deal with our local churches, and I can't ignore it. To not have this conversation would not serve so many of you, but it's an issue that has divided friends, families, and church communities. We're going to talk about church and the COVID pandemic. I'm going to humbly ask that you put aside your political preferences as you listen to our conversation. I believe there's a mission field here that many faith communities are missing. Thanks for listening. I know this this is probably something that's close to your family's heart, but I think this season of this pandemic season has illuminated some really big blind spots in our local physical church gatherings when it comes to people that physically are unable to be in the building for one reason or another. We started thinking about that more when it came to disease, but I started wondering too about all the people that we have in the past, even before pandemic happened, been, oh, well, it's too bad you can't be with us. Good luck on your own. Not not saying that really, but I have some really good friends that have experienced deep heartache over how they have seen the church react to, and I think maybe it was conflated with political season and the pandemic, but knowing that they have people in their family that are so immunocompromised. And really, they could come to church if people were willing to wear a mask. They have seen their local people that were friends to them, that they believe to be friends and supportive and love their family, really be like, you know, you're just going to have to stay home, I guess. You know, we're not going to wear a mask. Or And leaders that are unwilling to ask congregations to do anything. I would love to hear like what you would say to those people that are really hurting right now because they lost a faith community because they are their their child, their husband themselves cannot 
be while the pandemic is raging, when the numbers of infections are high and the hospitals are are full, they really need to be careful. So they're hurting and feeling well. They have been like left to their own. So I'd love to hear what you'd have to say to them or for them. Great question, and obviously another very important one and sensitive one right now during COVID nineteen. But the first thing that comes to mind is, and I've heard. Unfortunately, you have two lots of these kinds of stories, but I've got a really close friend who served for years as an elder in his church, who in the last six months resigned from his position over this discussion, because for him, it wasn't just about the larger debate about what do we do regarding masks and protocols in our church. It was his wife and his son we're both in the high risk category and he's an elder of this church. And unfortunately he didn't agree with the decisions being made by the leadership, the rest of the pastors and elders to continue meeting, to increase their gathering capacity. And he's, he's over here saying, it's not just my wife and my son, but it's several folks in our congregation who fall into this high risk category. And I feel like we're just plowing forward to your point, Amy, and saying, good luck. Good luck with your continued participation in our community, but we can't just, quote, stop church for you. And that's such a harsh and harmful message for anyone to to receive from church leadership. So he's he resigned. He stepped down. I was an elder from his church over that. It turns out they're not attending the church anymore. But this is a very real issue in many places. And one of the things I remember him saying during this process of resigning was, he said, if I'm a a shepherd of the body of Christ called to shepherd the flock and protect the vulnerable, then I feel like it's not just my, but our responsibility as shepherds to say, and he said this, he said, we won't march with the 99 unless the one is well and protected. And I feel like that's the vision many of us are longing to see from our faith communities and from our leaders that it it actually takes sacrifice. It takes cost to protect the vulnerable and to do the right thing. Of course, many of us have been disappointed by those decisions. But yeah, to offer a hopeful example, we're a part of a, a small congregation here locally in Colorado, and we've been deeply encouraged by the decisions of our pastor and clergy. For a long time, we didn't meet in person and we're completely online, remote, and our pastor made rounds visiting high-risk members to bring them communion, serve communion, to come to them, to to pray with folks, uh, especially our vulnerable folks. And there's been an intentional, again, and just an intentional pursuit all along the way to say, mm-hmm. we see you, we see your vulnerability. We want to make sure you feel safe and protected, not just safe and protected, but that you still feel like you belong during this season, regardless of if we're meeting or gathering. There's it's been in the language. It's been in the communication. Like you matter. We see you. Do you feel safe here? They've solicited feedback from our high risk folks. And yeah, it's, we've been deeply encouraged by it. That makes me emotional to hear that in a really, really good way. I'm not sure what the um, culture is like in Colorado. I live in middle Tennessee. We are very, very conservative area politically. And that has played out very specifically in regard to how churches and Christians in this area are responding to the pandemic. I do have empathy for pastors here that are trying to figure out what to do 
Because in, in our area, the majority of the people that are attending a church in person and, and would have been before anyways, the majority of the regular attenders of a congregation, they don't want to be asked to wear a mask. They don't want to be told to do anything. And if they are there, they're not going to come to your church. They may take a break or they may leave and they're going to be very vocal about it. And then you have a minority of people that are saying, we don't feel safe and we really want you to take some precautions. And some of them will be vocal as well. You're leading this church, Ryan. (laughs) How, how do you do this? Sharon Miller posted the other day, like hearing somebody say, pastors are not okay right now. And I I have some empathy with that. I think they are not the only ones that are not okay right now. (laughs) I'm just curious your thoughts. Like, how do you, how do you handle this? How would you encourage these pastors to, to be pastoral to all of these people? And they're saying, if, if I do this, Ryan, I am not going to be able to reach these people for Christ because most of them aren't going to be coming to church. Yeah. Yeah. I have a lot of empathy and compassion for the the real difficulty in these decisions, especially when you're in a context like you just described, where you are in a largely conservative setting. And sometimes that's reflected in the pastor's own convictions. So yeah, I, I do I do think I, I've thought about this if I was in if I was in the pastor's shoes right now with a congregation. And I've seen this play out where there are some pastors, at least from our observation, who have sought to please as many people as possible in their congregation so as not to cause too much division. And I can understand the motivation there to try and seek consensus and middle ground and compromise. But when you're in a pandemic, that's a public health crisis. There's no way to avoid hard decisions. And if if I'm the pastor of the church, I have to decide from the get-go, I'm going to speak from a place of conviction that I, I have a responsibility to protect the vulnerable and to make decisions in order to do that. And I want to invite um, the congregation to join me in that and then let the chips fall. And and I get that. I, I totally understand there's a real cost to that if that's my conviction. And if, if I'm pastoring the church with those convictions in a conservative environment, there's real risk to making those hard decisions. You could lose your church. The church could close down. That's obviously happened in many cases where the pastor did choose to hold the line and say, we're going to take these measures to protect not just our faith family here, but our neighborhood. And we're going to be responsible during this pandemic. We're not going to disregard it. We're not going to play politics and we're going to love our neighbors. And yeah, there are consequences, but ultimately if I'm a pastor, I have to speak and lead and serve and shepherd from my conviction. And I can't operate outside of that conviction. If I lose my job and we close down because I feel like we need to take these steps to protect people and love our neighbors. So be it. It's faith for me to say, I'm going to do what I believe is right to protect people. And, and I'm not going to choose to preserve my job and preserve this institution over preserving the well-being and health of, of the vulnerable in my neighborhood and in my congregation. Yeah. I don't minimize that at all. That is a very big deal. And I think that is one of the things that's really hard right now. I didn't email you this. I like to send you questions to think about ahead of time, but people are dealing with so many different things, different hurts and different experiences. And pastors are stressed out because they have this desire for unity. And 
they're not going to get it in this very easily. Like how can pastors, what would you say to them? Like, how can they be in a place to hear somebody that's hurting that may feel like a personal attack on them? I, I empathize. I, what a hard, hard position to be in. How do you take care of your own mental health as a pastor to put you in a place where you can actually minister to people that may be hurting from decisions that you have made, or you feel like they're, you internalize their, their hurt into your own hurt? Yeah. Unfortunately, there are too many pastors just awash in the politics and the politics of the community and, and too many pastors who are frankly functioning as just spokespeople for their community's politics. And and you're not seeing someone, you're not seeing a lot of these pastors take the opportunity to, to ask and lead their congregations and what Jesus and what the kingdom of God looks like in a season like this and what loving our neighbors looks like. So a, a lot of times, frankly, you're just seeing a lot of our leaders, religious leaders, just, I would almost say enmeshed in the political debates and firestorm. And sometimes they may or may not even realize how much they're swimming in it and it's affected their own leadership. And, and sometimes if you're, if you're a a member of a congregation um, and you're seeing this unfold, I'm not trying to throw pastors under the bus, but there, there have been many who it's almost like a change of personality, like this deep and intense political shift has happened. It's only become more entrenched and intense. And suddenly the pastor you knew two, three years ago, who was this kind shepherding uh, presence, feels more like a, a politician. And it's almost like you don't even know them anymore. Those bring up hard questions. Can you stay in a community if your pastor's just enmeshed in the politics and choosing to play that role to appease his or her, quote, constituents, congregation members? It's just a very dangerous, ugly place to be as a pastor. But for the category of pastors who are really, truly trying to faithfully wrestle with this, differentiate themselves from the politics, and are seeking to hear from Jesus and and do the right thing, I have so much compassion for those folks because I get it. The decisions on the ground are not easy. It's one thing for us to say as a member or a, um, an attender of the congregation, well, they should do this, obviously, but there's so many nuances and, and things going on. My main encouragement to those pastors is to do the right thing. And there's no way to exist in this environment and in these waters without there being some cost, Yeah, sometimes substantial, severe cost. But doing the right thing will serve you best in the end, uh, regardless of what happens. And those aren't decisions that are made in a vacuum. Hopefully, pastors have support around them. Mm-hmm people they trust. Hopefully it's a collective conversation happening in a healthy church context. It's so hard. It's just, it's so hard. And I think, again, for the pastor who is, you would say they're really wrestling with this. I see them faithfully engaging this issue They're They are sacrificing in order to try to protect our vulnerable. Then we have so much grace to extend back to that pastor. If, and when they hurt us, or if, and when they say something that feels like, ah, where is this coming from? It's, oh, well, yeah, you've been under so much stress. You've been grappling with this for going on two years. There's so much grace available in those relationships, but it is case by case. It's yeah. it's so case by case. How about for the leader that's saying, I want to make the right decision, 
but there's so much conflicting information out there. Who's to know what's true and what's not true? What voices would you recommend listening to? We all have our go-to sources and people we trust. You know, I would certainly, if I'm a pastor trying to encourage other pastors right now, I would certainly shy away from the the major news outlets just because of the polarizing mm-hmm. nature you're going to get in the rhetoric. I, I come from the place of listening and respecting science. And obviously I work in healthcare. Uh, my wife is a therapist. We've been in the medical world for so long because of her yeah. health challenges. I'm always erring on the side of trusting our medical institutions to a degree that I don't, I don't buy into some major macro conspiracies. That makes sense. There's something going on and the CDC is conspiring to, you know, with the government to, at some level, there's, I feel like I'm just practicing discernment with who I listen to. And again, I do come from the place of, I, I, I trust our medical community. I value our healthcare system. I listen to the people in the field, um, epidemiology and our scientists mm-hmm. who are speaking into this and offering guidance, but, you know, fully aware there's a lot of pastors yeah. who would say. You're so naive. It's going to be different depending on your local area too, like how, what the risks are. Just looking at national news may not help you in your rural community. So knowing what the needs are in your community, knowing what's happening in local hospitals, that's got to be helpful too. But I think what you said about your experience with the healthcare industry and Mm -hmm. what you've seen is really helpful because you don't see new information as making it seem like, oh, they were untrustworthy because they've changed, but you understand that we trust them more because if it never changed, then we know they're not actually learning anything new about the pandemic. It's just the nature of medicine and science. The more they're learning about something, the more we'll have an idea of how to deal with it. It only follows that what we learned in March of 2020 would be very different than October of 2021. Just on a local level, anecdotally and personally, in the weeks leading up to the vaccine rollout back in November last year, uh, November, December, the health system I work for, which is about 23,000 people, they surveyed our whole health system, associates, doctors, and said, if and when the vaccine becomes available, do you plan to take it? And out of our 23,000 person system, 98% of the doctors in our system said, yes, I plan to take the vaccine. And so I just think that's telling for me, that was a symbol, but also a real answer and response that these are, these are folks that I've trusted my whole life. I would have never questioned going to a doctor and questioning his or her opinion and expertise until this pandemic and the the politics of it. And 98% of the doctors in my community are saying, I'll, I'll be taking the vaccine and I will be recommending my, it to my patients. Yeah. And in some ways, I don't want to complicate the discussion more than that. And I'm saying this as a pastor, you know, I'm not even, I'm not even trying to sound cynical, but there is a market for conspiracy theories yeah. and pseudoscience. There's a real market for it. It sells. Yeah. So let's <laughs> talk about people. They want to be in the local faith community, have been hurt. What should we look for? And I love what you said about taking your time, grieve what you've lost. And I think this goes with another question I had sent to you. What are your non-negotiables right now? And think about that with a person who's been hurt. And I bet your list is different than when you were like 22 years old. 
And if you, I don't want you to feel obligated to share anything that's too personal, but what, what things would you look for and how would you find those? How would you figure this out during this crazy time? It's probably the very beginning of the pandemic. I wrote something on my blog, wrestling with these real questions. If we're visiting a church, having experienced abuse in a previous church, what would I, what would we be looking for and what should what would I encourage others to be looking for? I've spent so much time wrestling with this and thinking through it. I, I want to reference some of the things I remember writing there, but I would start, for me, it would start and end with the integrity and character of the leadership in the church as as priority number one. If I'm visiting a new community, if uh, my family's considering a church, and I realize as soon as I say that, that discerning the integrity and character of the leadership if you're visiting a community is very hard and it takes time. It's tricky because you can discern some things by visiting on a Sunday and hearing a a pastor preach or communicate and perhaps interacting with a pastor a little bit on that day, but there's a lot you still can't discern. So a Sunday environment and a service is inherently limited to to my ability to discern the character of the leadership, even though I think it's the most important priority for me in deciding if I'm going to invest in that community. So so in some ways, I'm kind of opening up a can of worms there because I'm telling myself and I'm telling anyone else I would encourage that needs to matter the most. And, and maybe first, it, it may be just important to realize how you may have been misled in the past to presume that there was character and integrity when there actually wasn't. What did you identify or, or look to and say that thing that, that those gifts that I was impressed by or that sermon that was preached, you know, I assumed character. Sometimes people assume the integrity of leadership because someone else told them that the leadership had integrity, even though they didn't. It's complicated, but one of the things I remember writing that felt really important to me and still does, I would say to any person or family visiting a new community who wants to potentially invest in a church again, is to realize that for for many of us, we were taught, and I think partially, helpfully, I was certainly taught this in seminary, that we choose a new faith community based on whether we align with that community theologically and and missionally. And so we look to the doctrines of the church. We look to the teaching and singing to see if it aligns with where um, I stand in terms of my own theological convictions and doctrine and, and what my family appreciates in a Sunday service, the teaching, the music. And we focus on alignment. A lot of us are accustomed to reading the church website and reading the doctrinal statements. What I've learned is too many of us have decided to stop there when discerning whether to invest in a church. And I think alignment is one important aspect of considering a new church family. But one question I think is ultimately even more important, even though it's harder to discern, is if you're stepping into a new a new church a new community that you're considering, ask the question, what is the history I'm walking into? And that's a complicated question. (laughs) It's a very different question. It almost feels out of bounds and foreign, 
but what is the history I'm walking into in this community? And when I say that, what I mean is not just give me a one page summary of how the church was founded and what's happened since, but slowly discerning what the relational history of the church is that will give you indicators to the church's health and the leadership's health. So we're getting into more questions about leader and staff and member turnover attrition. Uh, What are the stories and things that have happened in the history of this community that may or may not be openly talked about at all? A lot of times, if there are those stories, especially if there's abuse history, that's not going to be discussed with new members. That's not going to be brought up. But the point is, I think if if you, if you're asking the question, what's the history I'm walking into? You're trying to discern the integrity and the character and the health of the community first, which is manifested in relationships from the top down. And so you're getting into the weeds of what's the relational life and health and culture of this community, and how do the leaders of this community set the tone, and which requires a lot of discernment. Who do you talk to about that? I suppose maybe more than one person. Again, I wish there was a quick way. (laughs) I wish this could happen in in a day or a series of interviews. But, you know, if you're visiting a church, it's not uncommon to attend. Some churches will have a newcomer's gathering, a space to meet. Uh, If not the pastor, if it's a larger church, that's a whole nother topic. But meet someone from leadership or some leaders in the church, ask questions sort of an open forum kind of thing. Mm -hmm. A lot of churches do that. So that's an opportunity to ask some tougher questions to start to gauge. What's the response of the leaders when I ask them one or two hard questions about the health of this church and the history of this church? What's the turnover been like among leadership and among members? And Sometimes those feel like uncomfortable questions, but what you can sometimes discern is the spirit and posture of the leaders and how they answer. I think a healthy community with healthy pastors is not afraid of those questions. They're honest. They're willing to extend some vulnerability if there are painful spots in their history relationally. And you can discern the honesty and humility in the responses. I think a lot of times the more concerning responses you'll get from church leaders is uh, deflecting or to perhaps mention in passing some attrition that's happened in the staff or leadership, but but they're they're going to defend the institution. They're going to defend their decisions. They're going to point to all the great things happening. The church continues. It's still growing. You know what that stuff sounds like when uh, leaders go into preservation and image management mode. Mm. And so those are places to discern, yeah. but I'll stop there. There's a, there's a lot more, obviously. <laughs> yeah. The thing that I don't like, Ryan, I don't like this thing where you say it's going to take time. It's going to, you need to be slow. I wonder if a lot of us that have been hurt Uh because we've invested a lot in our Uh previous communities, we are the people that jumped in all the way, Mm -hmm. signed up for all the things we did all the things we bought the message that said, we don't just come to church to be fed. We know that those are not good Christians. (laughs) We need to feed ourselves. We need to serve. I mean, this is what church is all about. We serve. Now we're told we got to slow down. We don't know how to do church and feel like a good Christian being slow. I don't know how to do that, Ryan. I don't know how to figure out a church thing 
this is me wondering, like my pride, what are they going to think about me when I just show up and I don't sign up for everything and I don't lead the Bible studies? I don't go to the events. And when they're like, this is how you get to know people. This is how you get to know the church. This is how you do Christianity is you Mm -hmm. serve. Right. Yeah. Well, honestly, I think you're hitting on something really important and you can potentially discern pretty quickly. If you feel like the, the rhetoric and disposition of the church is if you're here and you're wanting to invest, then you need to sign up, plug in and do your part to quote, serve this church. And unfortunately, uh, a lot of what that means is there are too many churches who want to enlist people to help expand their operation and grow their institution. And frankly, I think that that is a very dangerous and unhelpful way to view the body of Christ and the gifts of the body of Christ and just the reality of the world we live in, Mm -hmm. where so many of us coming to a faith community aren't coming because we're we're giddy to sign up for something and start running or leading a program. Many of us show up because we're bleeding out because mm-hmm. we've experienced extreme and profound uh, loss in our lives in the last couple of years. And we're hoping to find some refuge in a yeah. congregation. But what you want to see and what you frankly should look for in church leadership is the presence and posture of shepherds who know that's the reality for people who pursue people to hear their stories and encourage people to engage at the level that's appropriate for them so that they can feel like a valued member and participant in the community. The idea that so many churches sort of try to funnel as many people as possible into serving and signing up for programs and leading to advance their quote mission is pretty egregious to me pastorally because where do all of the disabled people Mm -hmm. fit into that equation and the immense number of people who are just grappling with the difficulties and suffering of life who who frankly are not physically and emotionally capable of jumping in to enlist in a program and expand their vision of ministry and mission for an institution. It's just an unhelpful ministry vision. Our congregation is, uh, and pastor is a good example of this. We had two different pastors of this small church come to us early as we started visiting. And the first thing is they just wanted to meet with us to hear our story and get to know us. That's a great sign. They were most concerned about relationship. And when they met with us, they sat down to hear our story, which some of our story is painful. It includes spiritual abuse, hard to share. And our you know, main pastor cried when he listened to our story. And he just said, I'm so sorry. And we experienced him in that moment as a shepherd. And he is a shepherd. But the other pastor of this congregation did such a phenomenal job of going to us the first few weeks we visited, asking how we're doing. She heard some of our story too. And she said, listen, given what you guys have lived, you're coming from a ministry background. You've got real pain as it pertains to church. You need to give yourself full permission to just be here Mm -hmm. and heal. And, And you don't have to do anything for as long as you need to. There's no expectation for you to do anything. We're just grateful you are here, period. And so 
you can imagine how encouraging that word was to hear from a pastor in a new community. Yeah. And that's honestly what you want to hear from shepherds, from yeah. pastors. I don't know if I've ever heard that. Mm-hmm. I I long to hear that you you matter and you have great value to this community, even if you can't do anything. Mm-hmm. I said to my husband maybe a month or so ago, and I'm like, is I need someone to tell me this isn't just one big MLM that the little people at the bottom are doing all this work for the top. And if you stop hustling, you're invisible. And I think that's where some of those big hurts have been for me and my church experience. Everyone should get a good therapist. I found a great one this year and she, she understands the Enneagram. I know you do too. I mentioned to her, I just don't want someone to be alone in the thing that they're dealing with. That's really hard. And she says, where did that come from? And I was like, well, I don't know. And then all of a sudden I was like, all these places it came from. And it has been several church experiences throughout the years where like when I was unable physically to serve, I didn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. That is really so egregious. And what you said about what that means for people that are disabled or unable to do certain things, they have so much to offer. And mm. so just by being, not because mm. we need to put them in charge of something, but to listen and be in relationship with. Mm-hmm. And when right. you cut off being able to even know that person because they aren't able to show up for the things, mm-hmm. that that is a big loss for everyone. So I, yeah. I really appreciate you saying that. So my last question for you, Ryan, is what are some of the most important things? Or if you were to be sitting with somebody and you are right now, who's struggling, not in a church right now, what do you most want them to hear? You sent your questions beforehand. I was thinking through this a little bit. And my sense with so many folks right now in the church, a lot of us who have come out of abusive environments or are just stepping away from an institution because of this deep disillusionment, disenchantment. Uh, there seems to be a real collective kind of holding pattern for a lot of us who we've stepped away. We may or may not be investing in a new community at the moment. We might be just trying to figure out what in the world might be next and what in the world happened. And we're grappling with the grief and we're trying to figure out what is it we value and believe most and cherish about being a Christian and belonging to a community? What do we need most? All these big, important questions that require time, that require space and safety to do that. I think this is a season and a moment that just requires a lot of, of unfortunately, a lot of patience and forbearance because there is not a quick fix to this process. Some folks are going to need to step away and be away for years before they can think about re-engaging in a local church community. Others are dreaming about what might God be doing in our society, in our culture that's new. And a lot of us are longing for and waiting for new expressions of faith community and gathering. And new expressions of leadership that resembles Jesus. A lot of us are just waiting to see 
where can we go? I can say, I know, because we know some of these pastors that those shepherds exist. We just need so many more of them. And depending on where you live, you may be in a region, in a place that is relatively scarce of shepherds. The other piece of this that's interesting is I think a lot of us who are in this holding period, waiting, discerning, trying to figure out what's next for me or my family, grappling with an abusive story experience. I think God's inviting a lot of those folks to step in to some of that leadership, to respond to an invitation. I think a lot of the people who are coming out of religious abuse and trauma are being equipped to shepherd, even though they may or may not have the language for it or realize it right now. I think there's a lot of good happening under the surface. I think God's doing things, but the the waiting is still really painful. And the lament and the grief that I think we are invited to right now is really hard and, and painful, but necessary. We need to grieve and lament before we can imagine what might be next, not just for me and my family, but what what could be coming in the years to come in the church here in our setting in, in the U.S. that we don't see taking full shape and expression right now? And, and can we allow ourselves to dream a little bit about that? I don't know if you could hear it in my voice, but there were several times that I got choked up during that conversation. I know this is a very difficult topic for many, especially as it applies to the influence that politics and the pandemic have had on our experience either as church members or a church leader. There are so many wounded people. I hope that hearing Ryan's words has been an encouragement to you. As I have put together this episode, it has felt like holy ground, and it's my prayer that you have felt it as well. Thanks for listening to the Untangled Faith Podcast. This podcast is made possible through support of the Untangled Faith Podcast membership community. For information, you can go to untangledfaithpodcast.com slash member. If you want to continue this conversation, you can find me on Twitter as Faith Untangled and on Facebook and Instagram as Untangled Faith. Happy New Year. I will see you in 2022.